Hey, before we even dive into the Word, man, if you weren't here Wednesday night, you missed a, such a blessing. Uh, man, we had, we had three guys from our church. Uh, they were sharing about three topics. Uh, each one of them was covering uh, kind of a different way in which they connect with God. And so if, if, uh, if you'd like to be more involved, now we're, we're coming to the end of it, but if you'd like to be more involved on our Wednesday nights, grab one of these at Next Steps on your way out. Uh, we still got a couple of dates you can be a part of, a couple of things um, that are coming up. Uh, one of them involves homemade ice cream, so that's even better. And so make sure you grab that on your way out today. Um, but man, we had such a good time. Uh, Jerry Davis, Samuel Hardiman, and Daniel Herman all shared with us Wednesday night. It was such a good good time together. But uh, so going to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter eleven. That's where we're going to be. And uh, man, we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark. And so yes, I know you probably thought we already finished that. We didn't. Uh, we've been through two two sections of the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to finish it in July. Whether we get to the end of it or not, we're we're putting a we're putting a period on the end of Mark and 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 uh, getting through this. It's been such a good study, uh, but we're going to jump in. Um, we took a break in June uh, to kind of do that OK Google series where we looked at kind of some deep questions of life. But uh, and what we're going to find as we study through this in the the last six chapters of of Mark, what we're going to find is that. Uh, Jesus' ministry to the nations. The, the nations become the, the, the theme of Jesus' ministry, and they're ultimately fulfilled in his death and resurrection. And so there's so much stuff jam-packed in this last week of Jesus' life on earth. Uh, we're going to have a fun time journeying with it. But right now, I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Mark 11. Um, and it's a lot, and I'm not a great reader, but y'all bear with me, all right? Then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come back and, and uh, talk, okay? So the Lord, the word of the Lord says this, uh, when the, they approached, uh, Jesus and his disciples, when they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and, uh, and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples and he told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat untied and bring it. If anyone says to you, hey, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door, and they stole it. That, that's not what the text says, but can we all agree that's what they did? <laughs> they untied it, and some of those standing there said, Hey, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them and said, as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. Those, went, those who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. He looked around at everything. Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany uh, with the twelve. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, God, uh, for your word. God, we believe it to be 100% true. Um, God, I believe that everything that we read just now uh, got happened exactly the way that it says. And so, Father God, I pray that today as we start asking uh, the question of what does it mean, uh, what in the world uh, could this story have and the stories that follow it, what could they have re relevance for our lives today? God, I pray that you give us clarity of mind to see it. Um, and God, we thank you so much for, for Jesus, not only his sacrificial death, but God, stories like we're going to read today um, that are just going to help us learn what it looks like to follow him more clearly. And so, God, I thank you for those that have gathered here today. God, I pray that you would teach us to know you and who you are and that you would be with us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I grew up a Braves fan. 
and no booze. That's good, okay? Um, I grew up a Braves fan. My dad's still a huge Braves fan. I don't watch uh, baseball as much as I used to, but my earliest memories are sitting in the floor of my parents' living room watching the Braves play every night because I learned something. There's not a lot of kids in here, but here's what I learned. If you'll take an interest in something that your parents like, they'll let you stay up later than normal if you just won't like ruin it you know what i mean like so if i sat there and i would make a comment about a good curveball or like hey that was a good home run when it that like if i'll if i'll be engaged dad will let me stay up later now the moment that i start asking a lot of questions <laughs> the moment that i start you know not paying attention dad's gonna go hey go to, go to bed it's past your bedtime and then it's all ruined but for me uh some of you guys are older than me and you remember you remember braves teams that you know, whatever, um, were, were, you may argue they were better. But for me, there was nothing better than seeing Greg Maddox or Tom Glavin take the mound uh, on a, at a baseball game, a Braves game. And so I, I loved watching those two guys. And if they played lights out, Mark Wohlers would come in and finish the game. Mark Wohlers, the little, he had a little mullet in the back, just a heartthrob, right? Uh, but we loved Mark Wohlers. Uh, for me, those guys were the best. There was no better team. I have holes of where I didn't really care who was playing, but if Chipper was on third, Javi was behind the plate, Fred McGriff was on first, and Ryan Klesko was in left, I don't care about anything else in the world. Those are all the guys that I cared about. And um, I think there was something, and again, I was young, and so some of you guys maybe experienced them when you were older, and maybe they were, but for me, like I guess it was a time before social media as well, but like they seemed like good people. Now, come to find out, a lot of them were kind of dirtbags, but they were good. <laughs> they seemed like good people. You didn't know all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. And, uh, but man, they, 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 they were, I love those guys. And, but there was one guy who came, uh, to the Braves that kind of rocked the boat a little bit. There's a pun intended there. You know what I'm talking about? John Rocker. You remember this crazy nut? Uh, John Rocker was a young, brash, uh, twitchy pitcher. <laughs> Um, who always was saying something rather colorful, borderline racist uh, in the news. Um, his the Braves publicity team always had to handle it. But there was something about John Rocker, the way he entered the field. you remember the way he would enter the field? This cat, they would swing the, the bullpens, usually in the outfield, if you don't know that. Um, they would swing the bullpen door open, and he would sprint like a nut from the outfield all the way to the pitcher's mound. And uh, he just looked like a, he had this wild look in his eye. Like I say, he was real twitchy when he was pitching. Like he just, he was something crazy about him. And he pitched like he was crazy. But when he came onto the field, he entered the field like a madman. Then he pitched like one. Now, some of you guys aren't uh, baseball fans. How about boxing fans? No, okay. Um, I'll tell you about it anyway. Uh, I was, as I was researching this week, um, I, I, I watched what was said by many to be Mike Tyson's greatest entrance to a boxing match ever. It was 1988. He's the, war, he's the heavyweight champ. He's going up against Michael Spinks, who was a, you know Olympic boxer. They're at Trump Arena. The place is packed. Spinks comes in, robe on. He's shadow boxing. He's pumping the crowd up. He's doing his thing. And then there's this low bass note, just a, and you hear like chains and stuff. You you know the first part of Thriller, before you realize it's a pop song, when you think you're about to watch a horror film, that little section right there, stretch that out over like 10 minutes. That's what he walked into. No words, no peppy music, just this low, consistent roar with metal noises. 
He comes in. He's not wearing his, the, the championship belt. He's not wearing a robe. He's got shorts on, shoes on, and gloves on his hand. And he walks in all the way from the back, takes, jumps into the ring, or just walks in the ring super calm, doesn't try to pump the crowd up, but they're going nuts. You see, Tyson entered the arena all business, and then he went to work in the ring. I watched it because it was only 91 seconds long. Um, he puts him on the mat twice with body shots. Not like that sweet uppercut shot that he had to the chin. Body shots. Put him on the ground twice. 91 seconds. He beats uh, this Olympic boxer. Uh, retains the heavyweight belt. This was three days before his 22nd birthday. Just for perspective of his age. Now, here's the deal. When I look at John Rocker, and he's a super controversial guy. I'm not saying he's a good guy. But the way he entered the field, and then the way Mike Tyson entered the ring, they had some interests. very different but very effective for what they were trying to do. Their entrances set the tone for what was about to happen. Now, call it sacrilegious if you want. That's exactly what I think about when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Jesus enters Jerusalem. He enters the city at a very busy time. There are a lot of people gathered, and he, he has his own unique way. He's not sprinting through the city. He doesn't come in with an entourage of 50 people like Tyson, but he comes in in a very unique way that clearly drew attention. And what I found um, just studying this week is just I was blown away by the, by the intentionality of it. You know what I mean? Like Jesus doesn't accidentally, like coincidentally ruffle some feathers here. Jesus rolls into Jerusalem intentionally making a statement about what was coming next. Jesus' entrance into the city sets the tone for his last week of life. And so I'm going to argue through the next five weeks that the last six chapters of Mark are all about authority, that authority is something that's driving each one of those. And so in these first few stories we're going to look at today, Jesus is claiming an authority that not everyone was ready to give him or acknowledge in him, okay? So the first point is this, Jesus was claiming the authority of a king. So we're going to look at Jesus the king. Now I know what you're thinking, how did Jesus ride in? Open question. What's he riding a colt, donkey, tiny little thing. Anybody picture a king riding in that way? Not me. Um, or you know, during this period of time, you've got Alexander the Great, right? Like he rode in on these massive horses into cities. Like that's how a king enters. I also thought of Aladdin. Disney fans, <laughs> Aladdin, King uh, Prince Ali rides into Agrabah. I've got to look at it because I don't remember the song, but he had seventy-five golden camels. Purple peacocks, he's got 53. 95 white Persian monkeys, that's all part of the song. I'm not just making that up. He's got 60 elephants, and he's actually riding on one. And so this is what we often picture. This is the way we picture a king riding in. But there's something about the way Jesus enters that floors everybody. Do you see how they react? The people spread their coats out on the, the ground. They, start to, they take these leafy branches, and they're covering the ground. This was the ancient form of of laying out the red carpet, rolling out the red carpet. That's what they're doing. They're saying, this, this person that's coming, he's worth this. Let's not even let the, the hooves of his animal touch the floor. And do you see what they're saying? Verses 9 and 10, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, I, don't, I didn't follow you guys around this week, but I can almost promise you that there's a 100% chance you didn't use the word Hosanna this week. Anybody use Hosanna this week? In a, in, did you? 
Oh, okay. Well, good, good, good. Well, there's one of you. Uh, 99% of you didn't know, okay? But when I think about the word Hosanna, I don't, it's not a word we use quite often, okay? But um, the word itself is only used, the, the word that's used here in the New Testament is only used six times in the whole New Testament. And every one of them are used in this story. Matthew tells this story in chapter 21. Mark tells the story in his, in his book 11. Uh, John tells it in chapter 12. All six of them are coming in this one story. So it doesn't give us a lot of context of what in the world that word means. But it's actually a Greek form, so like a translation of a Hebrew word that's found many times in the Old Testament. I didn't count them. I used Bible software. 178 times to be exact. One of those is Psalm 118. Listen to what Psalm 118 says. It uses the word Hosanna. Lord, save us. So that's the word that's being translated. That's the, the root of the word Hosanna. Save us. Salvation. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. You see this. What did they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Lord, save us. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. The, these people that have gathered here to, to see Jesus' entrance, they're quoting Psalm 118 as they see him come in. And if you're... If, it, if it's intimidating for you, like, that you think I know, like, Greek and Hebrew, and you're like, man, he's, you're, you know, like, how do you know 178 times in the Old Testament? Like, Google it, y'all. Like, for real. When you come across the word Hosanna in the Bible and you go, I don't know what that means, Google the sucker. Right now, if you were to Google it, don't do it. Well, if you have my same search history, I guess Google knows what I search. But anyway, when I search, what does the word Hosanna mean? The top three choices, I'll give you the verses I'm looking at today, okay? So... That's all for free. I'm not, a, I'm not smart. I just look up smart people, okay? Um, but one of the other 178 uses is super important for us to look at. That's Zechariah 9.9. And again, you search it, you'll find it. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Israel. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. That's the, that's the word again, the salvation word, the Hosanna word. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see this. This is the text. This is what they're looking for. They're, 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 it's your king is coming to you. He's righteous. He's victorious, humble, riding a donkey. Zechariah, who, who said this, was, was a later prophet. And many of those later prophets that come, they, were, they wanted the nation of Israel to see that that God was going to send his salvation. Like that he, he literally was. That they, they, they didn't need to fear. They didn't need to, uh, to, to, to lose sight that there was a coming salvation for his people. One day God would send a rescuer, a Messiah, a Christ who could save them. And part of the vision that all these later prophets have of a Messiah was that he would be a new king because he was going to restore the kingdom. A king, a king like David was back in the day. That's what Zechariah's riffing on here. He says, your king is coming to you. Look, by the time Jesus begins his ministry, the Jewish people are looking for a Messiah everywhere. They're looking at all these Old Testament texts and they're studying it going, okay, he's got to be coming. He's got to be coming. He's got to be coming. He can't be. They're looking under rocks. They're looking under every, like they're looking everywhere for the Messiah. When this great teacher who's been traveling pretty small window of areas but 
This great teacher named Jesus comes riding into the city of Jerusalem right before Passover, fulfilling this prophecy of Zechariah. They jump on it. Because Jesus was showing us that, uh, that his kingship is being shown by his mode of entrance. If you want to write that down. Just like, just like uh, every good... Um, WWE wrestler. I was hoping Cam would be here so he could get fired up about that. Um, that's a good entrance, right? Like Just like uh, uh, Mike Tyson has this entrance. Jesus here, his mode of entrance, the way he enters the city is proving that he is the king. But here's the deal. Just as these people knew that Zechariah 9.9 said that your king is going to come riding a donkey, so did Jesus. Right? He is intentionally fulfilling this part of the story. He requests and waits on a donkey. He says, hey, go get, there's a colt. He's in the next town. I know it sounds weird, but go in time and bring him here. And then he's just going to hang out there. He just waits. He just waits. And then and they, his legs weren't tired. I promise you, a colt who's never been rodent before is not a comfortable ride. Okay? Um, but what this was intentional. Jesus rides into town because he wants people to begin to grasp the idea of him as their Savior. He knows his time is drawing to a close on the earth, and now it's time for people to see who he really is. So Jesus claims this kingly authority as Messiah as he rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. But there's another part um, that, uh, that I think is really, really cool. And I, I was reading a book this week, a, a pastor, theologian, smart dude, wrote uh, kind of a short commentary on the whole Gospel of Mark. And so, I, again, I didn't read it all. I skimmed it, okay? Um, but it was, he made a really cool connection. So uh, kind of sub-point to be whatever. Uh, the path of his entrance also is really important to this story. Not just the mode, not just the way he came in, but the path he takes. So if you're an Old Testament like guru, like if you just love studying those prophets, you may remember that during uh, Ezekiel, uh, he was this Old Testament prophet. And sometime around 586, he was speaking during a difficult time as the as Jerusalem was falling and the nation of Israel was a mess. God's people were disobedient in so many ways. They weren't following God well. Ezekiel has a vision of God. And this is chapter 11. Ezekiel has a vision in which God's glory leaves the temple in Jerusalem. This is verse, chapter 11, verse 23. There's more of the story, but I'll just read this. The highlight, the glory of the Lord rose up from within the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. Now, the mountain that was east of the city was the Mount of Olives, which was in or near Bethany. Does that sound familiar? Remember that from the story? Do you remember where Jesus was when he stopped and sent his disciples to go get the donkey? He was... Verse chapter 11, verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Again, this is supposed to trigger our mind, I believe, especially for those that have studied the book of Ezekiel, like these like these that are here gathered together today. They would remember the last time we saw the glory of God, the last time the glory of God was talked about in in his word, it was it was in Jerusalem. And it was seen leaving Jerusalem. It left and went towards the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus, the one that the book of Hebrews says is the glory of God himself, enters the city of Jerusalem at his last Passover, following the same path. It's a nerdy thing, okay? I agree. It's nerdy, but man, that's cool, isn't it? The last time the glory of God was seen, it was leaving, headed to the Mount of Olives, and now here comes Jesus following the same path in. I thought it was super cool. Jesus 
is the king who is claiming this authority by his mode of entrance and by his path of entrance. And so Jesus is not only that, though, the one the one I loved, to, I loved reading about this week, love studying on, uh, was Jesus claiming the authority of a priest. So Jesus, the priest, is point number two. And I can't wait to read you these next three verses because they are weird. Beginning in verse 12. The next day, so this is, Jesus rode into the town and went to the temple and looked around and then left because it was late. Uh, so the next day they went out from Bethany. And he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. That's weird. Um, so we went through a season not too long ago. Uh, you ever been in a time where you just you got a lot going on in your life and you hadn't run to Walmart? Right? And so, so you go to the fridge, and you're like, man, what am I going to eat? And there's nothing there. Imagine shutting the doors and cursing the fridge. Some of y'all may have done that, but like <laughs> placing a curse on the fridge. May no one ever eat from you again and turning and walking away. Like that's, that's similar to what's, this is a weird story. Jesus gets excited for some figs because he's hungry. The tree had leaves on it, but he finds it empty, so he speaks a curse on it. Well, it gets even weirder. If you look ahead to verse 20, uh, they actually come back by that tree the next day after they've left the temple, headed back. And that sucker had withered from the roots up. It was dead. 24 hours. Dead. And Peter, because Peter's a lot like me, he's a, he's a little he's a little quick to ah, freak out. He says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. And just like, yeah, because I cursed. You know what I mean? He wasn't blown away by that. But this story, again, I just want to, as I was thinking through it, okay, what is, why, what happened? Okay, I don't, we're going to talk about why here in a second, but what is going on? Here, here's, if I, if I could put into more words than what we see in the text, let me tell you what happened. Jesus is saying, I had a real need. And you, tree, were the place that was supposed to have what I needed. You even looked like you did from a distance. But as I got closer to inspect, I realized you had nothing to actually supply my needs. Okay, we agree. That's what happened. If you don't agree with me, talk to me later, okay? But, like, I think that's what's going on. So, so what are we supposed to do with that? What, why in the world would Mark include this creepy story? Well, first off, when a story is broken into two parts like this, with something in the middle, read what's in the middle, because it's probably there for a reason. Why did Mark not tell us after Jesus cursed? And hey, by the way, they came the next day and it was dead. But he spaces it out and puts the story that came next. I want to look at that story as Jesus enters the temple of Jerusalem. Mark fifteen, or Mark eleven fifteen through 18. So they came to Jerusalem after Jesus cursed the tree. And he went into the temple it began to throw out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. I know we can look at we look at stories of Jesus and they lose their uh, they lose 
I don't know, they lose something in that we're reading it in the Bible and we just, we're not shocked. Like, God, uh, who is it? Uh, David slew Goliath. Like, we, we've got these crazy stories that it's dulled our senses to what's going on, I think. We, we, we're expecting the Bible to be crazy, and so it doesn't blow us away. But y'all, Jesus, who's just a rabbi, he's not of the line that should be a priest. He's not from, he, he, he does not walk into the temple and tell anybody what to do. He goes in and just starts flipping stuff over, just losing it. Like just, just, I mean, and again, they're money changers and we're talking about here in a second, but there were coins all over this table. So I'm flipping it and there's coins going everywhere. This takes some guts. If you wonder why the scribes and Pharisees and the priests and all these people wanted to kill him, it's what's going on here. So a couple of a couple of reasons or ways that Jesus shows his authority as the priest. The first, he shows his authority as the, pre, the priest of Israel. Okay, so we're going to talk about that first. So this is a period of time. Uh, this is around Passover. And so Jews from all over the world would make this trek, no matter how far away it was, they would come to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Part of that highlight of that fast, that festival was the sacrificing of one lamb per family. That's what they had to do. If you go back to the book of Exodus, that's where they get it from, okay? But we see here that there were doves that were being sold too. So there's, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes on in the temple. You know how annoyingly difficult it would be to make a trek of, I don't know, even 50 miles on foot with a baby lamb and doves? Shoot me. That ain't going to happen. Like, that's that's terrible. That would be awful. So, it became easier to have animals available at the temple. These lambs that were going to be sacrificed, they would be made available at the temple. Temple, A little lamb vending machine. Right? Like, that's the way we picture it. Now, what you need to know is that this was a pretty sweet contract of land. Okay, this is a really sweet contract to land because Josephus, who was a historian writing about 30 years or so after Jesus, estimated that year that over 250,000 lambs would be killed at Passover. That's how many were killed. So that's a big contract. Like if you're a lamb breeder, you're in line for that contract. I want to be the one to supply those. But there was something else. So the, the, the money side of it, people also had to pay a temple tax when they came during this time, um, which, which was just to help provide for the temple, provide for the needs of the temple, which best I could tell looking this week um, is probably about two days wage, two days wage, which was for the average worker. That's what they were required. And, but the currency that they were bringing in had whose image, had whose picture on it? Andrew Jackson, right? What is he on, a ten? See on a 10? Y'all don't know either. Okay. All right. It doesn't matter. It had Caesar's picture on it. All their money would have had his picture on it. Well, you know what you weren't allowed to do in the temple? Is bring pictures of Caesar in. Especially on your money because it was like a graven image. God said back to Moses a long, long time ago, don't make for yourselves a graven image. So there's something about that, those coins that just made everybody a little iffy. Should have God's picture on it, not Caesar's. So what they would do is at the at the outer courts before you brought the money, uh, the the priests before you gave your money to the priests, they would exchange it for a currency that the priests were more comfortable with, um, and so uh, that needed to happen. So you got another contract, right? You got the money guy, you got the vending machine guy, and then you got the money guy who's there. He's exchanging money, and you think both either of these guys are working for free? No. They're gonna make a little. They're gonna make a little money off of it. 
a little profit off of each festival. And Jesus walks into the temple and says, this is gross. And he shuts it down and he flips tables over. Jesus makes a scene. If you've never flipped a table over in anger, I don't know if I have either, but I've wanted to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like nothing says I'm mad and everyone look at how mad I am <laughs> than flipping a table with stuff on it. I mean, can you imagine? There's people a long way off coins are rolling by their feet, right? The animals that were made like bird cages or <laughs> birds are flying everywhere. This would have been a wild scene. And Jesus makes this, and I, I think we get it. I think we can understand from Jesus' point of view, like, hey, this is weird, man. But how does this connect with a fig tree? Remember that weird story? <laughs> so I want to go back to the statement I made earlier about the fig tree, the one I just put in my words. Remember Jesus said this, I had a real need, and you were the place that I was supposed to be able to go to have what I needed. You even looked like you did from a distance. But as I got closer to inspect, I realized you had nothing to actually supply my needs. You see what Jesus is doing here with the fig tree. Jesus is comparing this fruitless fig tree with the way the temple was being poorly kept. People are coming year after year, multiple times a year for different festivals and days. And these priests had a very specific task to protect the temple, keep it holy keep evil and wickedness outside. They were to be mediators between God and man. The people were coming to them broken sinners in need of forgiveness for their sins, and they came to the place where they were supposed to experience restoration with God. And it even looked good to most people. The priests had their fancy garb on, and they walked around with their things, with smoke and all, like all the stuff. The pre everything looked good. But there was nothing there to provide for their needs. It had shriveled from the roots up, just like a fig tree. The temple had become a joke, a terrible picture of the sins of the people instead of the holiness of God. And Jesus takes on the authority of a priest, y'all, which he did not have. Keep that in mind. Jesus was not known to the Jews as a priest. He was known as a rabbi. He was just a teacher. When you go into the temple, you don't touch anything unless you're asked to touch something. And Jesus goes in and takes on the role of a priest, supersedes their authority, and acts to keep the temple free and clean from impurities and evil. And he cleans them out. You see, what we're seeing is that Jesus, by doing this, is showing the Jews who were there that he's the priest that they didn't even know they needed. He's the priest they didn't even know they needed. But, but there's more here. Man, there's more here. Because Jesus makes a statement in verse 17 that doesn't make sense with what we're talking about. And so we've got to look at it because Jesus was not only a priest for God's people, he was a priest for all nations. Not only the priest of Israel, he was the priest for all nations. Notice verse 17. Jesus was teaching them and he said this, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. Jesus quoting the book of Isaiah writings of Isaiah that those that are listening would have been very familiar with. I want to read that to you, Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. As for the foreigners, talking about those who aren't of Israel, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to become His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold firmly to my covenant, 
I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. God says through the prophet Isaiah that he wanted Jerusalem and the temple and all of that worship to be a place not just where Jews worshipped, but foreigners who had seen the hand of God working and moving could come and meet with him and learn about him. Those who had witnessed all the way back to the parting of the Red Sea. There were Egyptians who saw that and went, we need to be with you. And they followed you. And over and over again, as Jericho falls, you think some people didn't go, I think we're in the wrong place. The Jordan River is part, and they walk through. Like all of these things that are happening, God, the, the Bible often says that God did those things so that the, that the nations may see and know that I am God. And so God's saying, as these people are coming in, welcome them into our family. But by Jesus' day, because of the exile that had happened, like when Jerusalem fell and it was handled you know, roughly, a lot of people were carried as slaves and and then some of the persecution that they were experiencing by the Romans as Jews, they had led them to totally avoid texts like Isaiah 56 and focus instead just on themselves, that, that, that God is our God and that they were not welcoming to Gentiles. They believed that God was interested only in saving them. So why does, but why does Jesus bring that up here? So we have a couple that's in our first service. Chad and Tyler O'Dell. And uh, Tyla, if, if uh, we posted about her son, we prayed for her here. Tyla has has some some major health issues uh, regarding seizures and things like that. Uh, she's going through some other treatments, trying to figure out. She's showing some MS symptoms, um, so I encourage you guys to pray for her. Uh, nothing's conclusive yet, but they're just uh, just pray for Tyla and uh, Chad. But they've got three kids, and and they have two boys. Their oldest boy Noah. Um, I know some of y'all think you have kids that ask questions. Noah asks all the questions. Like he, I love Noah. And so one of Noah's things, one of Noah's things is, is he's going to be a, like a FBI, CIA agent or something one day. He's going to work for MI6. He's going to do something because this guy, he loves security. So in their house, if you go to their house, I went and prayed with them over some health stuff not long ago. And every door, there's a, he's, he's put above the doorknob a piece of paper that has a secure, it has like his own drawing of a security passcode thing, right? And he has a certain clearance level on each one of the doors. And so when you come in, you're given a certain level of security clearance, and you can't enter any, praise the Lord, he gave me the one for the bathroom, because that was helpful. <laughs> but like there, you, you get a security pass and all that. And, uh, and so anyway, y'all you, you know how that works. Some of you guys work on the arsenal, like y'all you know stuff better than me. But so the best way that I could describe what the temple was like was that there were just increasing levels of security clearance. So the, the very most, the inmost piece of the temple, only the high priest could go in. Nobody else was allowed. He's the only one with the card. The next section was for all the priests and Levites, those that were of the priestly line, those that were serving as priests. They could enter there, but no one else. And then the next section uh, away from from the from where the sacrifices are made was the uh, the I'm blanking on it, court of the Jews I think is what it's called but it's actually only the men only Jewish men were allowed to enter that court and they could actually from that courtyard they could see the sacrifices being made in front of uh, in front of the sanctuary 
And so that was it. And then there was another court beyond that, a court, a court of the women. And this is where the Jewish women were allowed to go. That was their furthest card don't work at the next door. That was where they had to stay. And then there was what they call the outer courts or the court of the Gentiles. And this is as far in as those who were not Jewish were allowed in. Now, if you've got to set up a lamb vending machine and you you got to set up uh, coins, where are you going to put them? You're going to put them in the outer courts. And that's exactly what they did. This is the only place, this is, the, this is as close as they could get the Gentiles, uh, this means non-Jews. This is the closest they could get to the symbol of God's presence, and it was filled with animals and salesmen. You see Jesus' frustration. He knew that the temple was to be a place of worship for the nations, but here the Jews have made the decision that the nations were not worth it. The fruitless fig tree all over again. This is why Jesus reminds them of Isaiah's words, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus takes on the role of a priest here, superseding the role of all the other priests. And he interprets God's word and acts on it to make the temple better resemble God's intention more accurately. This was the role of a priest, but it was being neglected. Jesus has shown himself in these texts, rides into town on a colt, donkey. He rides in claiming authority as king, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And then the next day he comes back and he, he, he overthrows the authority of the priests by doing their job when they want, runs out those that are just there to make money. Here's what we need to see. These intentional acts of authority are what will be the last straw for his enemies. This is the last straw. But he knows what he's doing. See, to fill in the rest of the story, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus doesn't cease to be king. In fact, after he dies and raises from the dead, he ascends into heaven where he sits where? At the right hand of God. Which ain't a lazy chair. Lazy boy. Easy chair. It's a throne where he now sits and throne ruling above the cosmos as king. And we also learn that he still serves the role of priest. Uh, The New Testament tells us that he is between us and God. He's the one who speaks on our behalf. He's the one who made the sacrifice for us. So Jesus not only proves to be king and priest 2,000 years ago on his entrance to Jerusalem, he still today serves in those roles. So let me ask you two questions. Are you trying to be your own king? That's the question God hit me with this week. Like I was studying this, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. Now what am I supposed to walk away with? And Jesus hits me with this question, and I hated it. Because oftentimes I want to call the shots. Who knows better what to do with my life than me? Amen. Like that's the way I think sometimes. Like that's what I want to make my decisions, man. But what, what we're seeing here is if Jesus truly is the king then we've got to trust him to define for us what is good and bad and follow him. Instead of doing like Adam and Eve and taking the fruit for ourselves and wanting to find for our, define for ourselves what good and bad are. So wrestle with that question. Are you trying to be your own king? But the second one maybe stinks even worse. Are you trying to be your own priest? So often we live as if we can earn God's favor. 
We can do enough good things to keep God's happy, to keep God happy. And we say things like, well, at least I'm better than Matt Tribble is. Good night. Right? Like, but here's what I need you to know, guys. We are not good people. Like, Matt's certainly not a good guy, and I'm not either. Neither one of us are. He's rocking that new mustache, but he's not good. Usually I don't do things like that this close to the end, Matt. But but listen, I say that to say, like oftentimes I want to earn God's favor. I try to compare myself to other people, but, but I'm not a good person. I'm a broken sinner in need of someone to speak to God on my behalf. And listen, if you're looking to me to speak to God on your behalf, I didn't get that calling. I'm not your priest. I'm not your Savior. Jesus is the one who stands between us and God and bridges the gap with His death. And today, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, we'd actually love to help you do that. We can walk you through that before you leave here today. We're going to sing one last song, and I'm just going to be right back there at the back. Slide back there and come talk to me. But here's the question. If you're a believer already, right? If you're a believer already, these two questions are on the table. Are you trying to be your own king? And are you trying to be your own priest? Are you trying to do your own thing? Are you trying to call your own shots instead of following God's will for your life, instead of following what Christ has laid out? Um, listen, God, guys, God gave us his word, and he filled us with his spirit, and we still choose to disobey him. What in the world kind of wickedness is that? But it's what we do. Are you trying to be your own priest? Even Christians who acknowledge Christ as Savior can live their lives as if they're doing something to please God when in reality we, we're, we're ignoring the fact that we're still sinners in need of a Savior. So this week, these are the questions I've been wrestling with, and I'm, I'm ready for a break, so I'm going to ask you to wrestle with them for just a minute, and then I'm going to get back to wrestling with them too. But I want to help you wrestle with these two questions. And so the altar will be open if you can come pray up here. I'll be back there at the back if you can come talk to me about anything or talk to me about next steps. But these are two questions I think that uh, God would have us wrestle with. Let me pray, and then we'll stand and sing. Father, we thank you, uh, God, for your word. Um, and God, I thank you for uh, this weird story of a fig tree. Uh, God, these stories of Jesus entering into, temp- in- into Jerusalem, God, like a boss, and then entering the temple like he like he's the just fixing what's wrong. And God, I'm so thankful for these stories, God, and the way they've spoken to me this week. And God, I pray that, that uh, God, as we wrestle with these two questions this week, God, that you draw us closer to who you are. And God, that any next steps, any, any basic things we need to begin to do in our life different, that you give us clarity on those. And God, help us as a church to do that together. God, I thank you. I pray that this time honors you as we respond through singing, through prayer, or through, uh, through conversations about next steps. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guys, let's stand and let's sing.